This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm your host and Three Pillars Chief Evangelist, Scott Varho, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Teresa Torres. Teresa is an internationally acclaimed author, speaker, and coach. She teaches a structured and sustainable approach to continuous discovery that helps product teams infuse their daily product decisions with customer input. Teresa has coached hundreds of teams at companies of all sizes, from early stage startups to global enterprises in a variety of industries. She has taught over 12,000 product people discovery skills through the Product Talk Academy and is the author of the book, Continuous Discovery Habits, Discover Products That Create Customer Value and Business Value. Teresa, as I mentioned, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us on the Innovation Engine. Thanks, Scott. I'm excited to be here. Well, let's um, um, before we dive into some of the details of, of continuous discovery. One one thing that really stood out to me as I as I listened to your book, uh, I listened to your book on on audio, as I mentioned uh, before we got on here. And one thing that really struck me is is how you know agile the agile manifesto is coming up in 20, its twenty second anniversary, and it seems to me that that so much of agile focused on one half of the equation that the original signatories were after, which was uh, agile execution, iterative execution of value, but but really did we really haven't made a ton of progress on the other side, which is that continuous continuous discovery. Those engine those those engineers that signed the manifesto really wanted to get closer to users, so they knew that what they were building was valuable. Um, and again, I think I think we 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 just re we moved all the deck chairs around and made it about two week sprints, but but not so much the continuous discovery. So I was I was curious. Um, what your thoughts are on that and on how how we're doing as an industry and executing on the right things versus uh, executing uh, better. Yeah, I think we've both come a long way in those 22 years and we have a long way to go. <laughs> so uh, I think that one of the ethos of the Agile Manifesto is this, I, I think it, that really came out of engineers just getting frustrated that they were building the wrong stuff. And we got to put it into context, right? At that time, it was a project world uh, stakeholders were bringing requirements that we were building big monolithic projects before anybody saw anybody saw any progress whatsoever. Um, and so this I, even just this shift from like big projects to small batches was kind of revolutionary. Now the challenge is if we're really gonna try to build the right stuff, we got to build in customer feedback loops. That was right there in the agile manifesto, smaller batches, more frequent customer feedback, right um, but that's really disruptive for business because in a business context, what we're used to is our leaders kind of control and command, dictating down, here's the right thing. This is what we should do. And you can change your batch size, but if you're not changing your culture to be willing and able to react to that feedback, nothing has really changed, right? So for a lot of companies, they've moved to this sort of two-week scrum process uh, they might be getting feedback, but usually it's from the rest of the organization. It's not from customers, right? So it's like there's sort of this view of the Agile manifesto of like our customer is our business stakeholder and we're going to do demos internally to that stakeholder and let them give feedback. And I would argue that's not really discovery in the way that I mean it because ultimately we're not building for our stakeholders. We're building for our customers and our customers are the people that use our product in, day in and day out. Um, so in some ways, like the manifesto helped us make a giant step forward in that I think small batches are a critical part of this, um, but I got we got to keep pushing, right? We are moving from a project mindset to a more continuous mindset. 
we are seeing more companies recognize the customers outside of the building. Um, but business is slow to change. So while we've made a lot of progress, we still have a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I definitely uh, want to come back around to some of the the some of the very valid reasons why businesses are concerned about that kind of continuous discovery and and continuous replanning. But, you know, it is interesting that Agile gives us the ability to pivot based on new information, right? So that small batches, like you said, it's it's great because you every two weeks you can take that new information and then replan and, and pivot. Um, but of course, if the only new information you're ever getting is this feature costs more than I thought it did. That's that's interesting and it's important in an ROI calculation, but it's not really the texture that we need to build great products. So so then going a little bit deeper into the continuous discovery habits, what what are some of the most vital habits um, that teams should employ just to get started um, and and then and and crest that hump of saying, okay, now we're doing some continuous discovery. What do what do you see as, as the right starting point? Yeah, so in the book, I introduced a, fr- a really simple framework to help us think about discovery. It's an opportunity solution tree. So it starts with this idea of what's your outcome? What's your end goal? This is There's a lot of conversation in the industry about outcomes, but I think it's as simple as going all the way back to Stephen Covey's begin with the end in mind, right? Like, what are we trying to do? And I think for product people, we tend to define what we're trying to do with output, right? Well, we're trying to build an Android app. The challenge with that is we can build an Android app and create no value for anybody, either our customer or our business. And so this shift from like outputs to outcomes is trying to help us think about what's the value of the thing we're creating and how do we make sure we capture that value, both for the customer and for the business. So the outcome kind of represents business value. Then we want to look at what are unmet customer needs, pain points, or desires that um, if we addressed them could drive that outcome. So that's what we're looking at, customer value. And then we need to look at how do we discover the right solutions. So if we look at that framework, I think there's a couple of key habits that that I think are the backbone of discovery. The first is this outcome mindset. Like how do we really understand the impact of what we might build? Um, The second is really getting good at interviewing to discover those unmet needs, pain points, and desires. And then the third is assumption testing to help us evaluate solutions. And there's more habits than those three in the book, but those are sort of the three main ones. And then all the other habits are sort of uh, supplementary habits that help you do each of those things. Mm-hmm. And how important, I'm curious how important you, th- I'm sort of drilling in on this one a little bit deeper because um, I've I've been exposed here at Three Pillar to fantastic user research, but most of my career, I did not have access to, to great user researchers, people who understood how to ask non-leading questions of, of customers uh, to get the answers you want instead of their, their, the real answer. Um, and, and so I'm curious how, how important you think that skill set is uh, in terms of getting, getting the value out of, out of continuous discovery? Or do you think just the contact alone delivers enough value that even if you're doing it wrong or, or not necessarily applying the skill set uh, to its, its utmost value, you're still getting more than if you don't uh, engage with customers? Yeah, I like to think about this from like a good, better, best standpoint. So let's say you're a product team, you have zero training, you have no idea what to ask a customer. Are you going to benefit from exposure to your customers? Yes, right? It's still good to get exposure. And the reason why is we just work on our product all day, every day. We know how it works. We know where everything lives. We're experts in our products. When we develop expertise, there's a bias that comes into play. It's called the curse of knowledge. So we forget what it's like to not have our expert knowledge. 
So then as we go about, we make our daily product decisions. We're making them from our expert point of view, and they're not likely to work for our customer because our customer doesn't know the product inside and out. They don't know where everything lives. They don't know what order to do things. So just exposure, like just exposure to customers helps expose the fact that we think about the product differently from our customers. And I think even just exposure is better than no exposure. Now, we can get better than that, right? So the better than that is, okay, can we learn a little bit about how do we ask more reliable questions? How do we take a little bit more of like a scientific mindset to this? Um, And so I think product people, product managers, designers, software engineers, they can learn a little bit to dramatically increase the reliability of what they learn from those conversations. And then I think best is we have trained professionals who are very good at research. We call them researchers. Um, and they obviously can level us up really quickly and they can do a lot more research as well. Um, what I don't like is when that best turns into we're the gatekeepers, we're the only ones that talk to customers. Um, if we don't do research exactly right, there's no value in this. Um, so I think it's, we have to be careful. Obviously, the best scenario is let's let researchers do what they do best while also having the whole team get exposure to customers. Um, and so I think that's the, that's the uh, line we're trying to walk. One thing that's really excited me is all the, all the new tools in the space, um, you know, like, a, like a look back where you know, we, can, we can kind of do the virtual version of being behind the, uh, the, 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 what is the one-way glass, right? Um, and we can observe without being present in the interview and, and, and so forth. And, you know, I, it's interesting, only having sat in on a handful of, of uh, user interviews early in my career, I was like, this is a gold mine. I'm getting so much more texture and quotable moments where, and thank God I'm not asking the questions because I would totally go down a rabbit hole on what I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited that I, I get to work with someone who, who asks uh, more uh, neutral questions and gets, gets that emotional that emotional response or that thoughtful like, oh, I kind of expected this. I was like, really? Like, why did you expect that? That's so interesting. Um, but um, but yeah, so the new tools, I, I feel like just make this so much more doable at a, at a cost that all companies can afford to do. And then to be able to share those those experiences, those moments, those interviews or, or, or snippets with the engineering team and humanize the users for them, um, a huge opportunity. So I, I totally agree with you. Um, yeah, so, you know, mm-hmm. the tools and the cost of this, I think, have really changed in that 22-year history of the Agile Manifesto, right? 22 years ago, to run um, some interviews, what did we used to do? We rented a facility with a two-way mirror. We set up cameras. We hired a facilitator. Mm-hmm. We got the whole team to watch through the mirror. Um, we did it maybe once a quarter if we had a company that really cared about yeah, this very stuff. Very progressive And it cost company. us $30,000. <laughs> yeah. Right? That was a 30K project. Yep. Um, okay, so now what does it look like? I can have a $15 Zoom account. Uh, maybe I'm going to pay my participant 50 bucks as an incentive. Again, it'll depend on industry, but let's just put that as our average. And that's about it, right? And the difference is I can recruit globally in any country as long as I speak the same language as my participant. Yep. Um, I can do several a day. We and that's we're not even getting into the like now we're getting really cool synthesis tools um, mm-hmm. with sort of chat GPT functionalities and summary tools and insight finders Sentiment and, analysis. and then we can record it. <laughs> yeah, we can record little clips to share with our team. It's like it's it's amazing. Yeah, I am. I'm 
I mean, it's really easy to think like we've made no progress, but I think about what I did on a day-to-day basis 20 years ago, uh, it is so much easier to do this stuff today. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's that's the kind of really exciting thing is the cost and the the accessibility of it to companies has come way, way down. And the the va- it's more valuable today to be competitive than it's ever been. Um, if you want to stay competitive, that you have to be harvesting new information. Um, and and yet it's still the most common way for me to see companies operate as feature teams. Um, we build you know, we're judged by how successfully we put out the number of features on time that our stakeholders internally ask us for. Um, and, and that continues to still be the, uh, the, the main modus operandi that I see. And it's, ah, oh, it just makes me sad. <laughs> we, we have so much, so much more value we could be creating with our tool sets. I really think a company's understanding of the opportunity space is how they differentiate themselves, right? So like what makes a product better? It either better addresses a need than, somebody, than a competitor, or it addresses needs that its competitor doesn't address, right? And not all needs are the same. So a company that really does a good job of understanding the opportunity space and understanding what are, what are the opportunities that really impact a buying decision and a retention decision. And then those things aren't static things. They change over time, right? So having this ongoing understanding of that opportunity space and what are currently differentiators and then, you know, new technology comes along that disrupts that. I think chat, the GPT, the language tools we're doing are going to disrupt a lot of spaces and a lot of opportunities are going to change pretty dramatically. Um, but that's exciting, right? Like, it's fun when a new technology comes along and opens the door to like, hey, we can do all sorts of new things with this. Um, and to me, that's, I think, the really fun part of product is how do we make sure we know our customers well enough to address their needs better than anybody else in our space. And we tend to frame competition as like more features, but it's not more features. Like usually it's it's a smaller product does a better job of addressing a really targeted need than a big bloated product. Yep. Yep. I I I happen to hail from that school of product thought, but there are a lot of people that are feature happy and that's that's uh that's how but I yeah. I always say I, I want to be adored and indispensable to a few rather than tolerated by many. Um, that's, that's how I think about my products. Yeah. Um, but again, a lot of people, when they're looking at TAM, <laughs> total addressable market, they, they yeah. want the biggest slice of pie. And I'm like, well, you know, we could, we could be, we can be really sticky and then move out from there, um, is another way to look at it. Yeah. What's interesting too, is you got to look at like the cost of that big of a market, right? So like you have a, you have a giant TAM, you decide to try to be a little bit of something for everybody. Now your support costs go way up, your marketing costs go way up, right? Like it affects the whole organization. Um, whereas I think, I mean, this is sort of a business trope, but it's it's true for a reason, right? Like if you focus on a teeny tiny niche, you know exactly who to market to, you know exactly how to price, you know exactly what examples and use cases to provide, um, and you get really happy customers. And I think the strategy of starting teeny tiny and then growing to a we all know this, right? We can read the strategy book that tells you to do this, um, but doing it in practice takes so much discipline. I did want to bring us back to, to one of the concepts that you hit on in the book, the product trio. Um, and you talk about this being central to building a high-performing product team. Can you talk a little bit more about the, the product trio? Yeah, this is really grounded in the idea that like business teaches us how to work in silos, which is a little bit unfortunate. 
Um, so how do product teams typically work? If we look historically, the product manager works with stakeholders and gathers requirements. Charlie, that tells you we're doing something wrong. We're gathering our requirements from stakeholders. I just, I just, I just shuddered. And then they write a product. <laughs> yeah, then they write a product requirements document. It gets handed off to the designers who do all the design work and then both get handed off to the engineers. In this model, we see a lot of rework, right? So the product manager does their best job gathering requirements. It gets handed off to the designer. The designer starts to work on the designs. And what happens? We got to rewrite requirements, right? We forgot about a use case. We forgot about some error handling. There's always gaps. It's impossible to write perfect requirements. So by the time we get to the design phase, we're uncovering those gaps. We're redoing requirements. Now we hand it off to engineers. And the first thing that inevitably happens is they estimate the work. And it's four times as long as we actually have, which is why all of our projects are over budget and late. So what do we do? We de-scope. We rewrite the requirements, which means we're redoing designs. So we're just like iteratively iterating on this giant project-sized piece of work um, to support our silos. And what we're learning is it's actually faster and we get better solutions if we just get these three groups working together from the very beginning. So we're not letting product managers write requirements in isolation. We're not letting designers do designs without input from the engineers. Even at the idea conception, like what are we going to be building? We want engineers involved in that process. First of all, they know the technology better than anybody else. They know it's possible in a way that we as designers and product managers and business, business stakeholders don't. So the idea of the product trio is how do we truly collaborate cross-functionally from the very beginning. And the very, very beginning meaning we have to make a decision about what to build. How do we get everybody involved? And it feels inefficient because we want our engineers writing code and we want our designers doing design work. Um, but in practice, what we're seeing is it's faster and it leads to better solutions. Now, one thing I'll tackle because I get a lot of criticism on the trio from people that have titles other than product manager, designer, and software engineer. So the product trio is not meant to be exclusive. It's not just those three roles to discovery. It's not just those three roles of the decision makers. The key concept is it's a cross-functional team that's working together from the very beginning. This is At a conceptual companies, framework. The roles that they're hiring. Yeah. yeah. And most companies, the roles that they're hiring are product managers, designers, and software engineers. If you have other roles like user researchers and content marketers and product marketing managers, you get to decide what's the right small cross-functional team that should be involved in your discovery decisions. Right. Well, and one of, one of the ways in which I, I talk about uh, uh, the, same, the same kind of thing is, is I talk about the value of creative tension. Um, you know, no one mm -hmm. person, no one person, period, not, not even a role uh, or even a, a department knows everything that they need to know to create the best possible product. And so if we're interested in getting it right, um, over being right. That's a, a phrase I'll often use. Like, let's get it right together. That's going to take all three of those conceptual um, roles, uh, embracing the creative tension of producing product. It's it the word requirements always bothered me from the very, very beginning of my career because it's so unidirectional as if there's nothing to talk about. Yeah. I have the requirements. We fulfill the requirements. Yeah. Like, it's so straightforward. It's a factory. Um, here's the spec. Um, it's not so different from waterfall and and we just turned them into user stories. Great. That 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 did not really achieve the the promise of agile, right? Um, but can we hold that creative tension and bring different ideas to the table? I think creative tension is a great word for it. Because one thing I see a lot, in fact, I get asked this question about the trio all the time, 
oh, are we a trio because the engineer is responsible for feasibility and the designer is responsible for usability and that product manager is responsible for viability. Okay, let's pretend that's the case. So now we've got a solution that we think could work, but the engineer has a feasibility concern. Do we just let the engineer change the solution on their own? <laughs> right? right? Or maybe like the designer came up with a design, but it's going to take 10 times as long to build. Do we just say usability wins out over feasibility? Right? If we say the designer is not responsible for feasibility, what encourages that designer to come up with a good design that can actually be built? Right? So what we used to do is we used to just have opinion turf wars, right? And one of these traits would win out. We would decide in this case, usability is better than feasibility. But we actually never made that decision. Feasibility always won out because feasibility dictates budget and schedule, right? So what would happen is we would compromise usability for feasibility. We would compromise desirability for feasibility. When we say all of these rules are equally responsible, now our designer and our engineer have to work together to find a good design that is feasible. So instead of compromising, trading these against each other, we're actually using them as constraints and we're only considering solutions that meet all of these constraints. And that's exactly the creative tension. Yes. But it turns out that creative tension is what leads to better solutions. That's right. That's right. Yep. That's, that's, that's and, where you... And this is why I think this model... It like really does lead to just much better solutions yeah. because we're tapping into that creative tension. Fascinating. Well, you know, and, and this sort of gets me into another area that I'm, I'm deeply passionate about. I have always benefited from having immense amounts of customer data, behavioral data. How are they using my product? Um, I've never been able to actually get strong insights out of that data, which drives me insane to this day. Um, and, and I, I, I really, I'm really curious your thoughts on this. Um, I've heard you talk about instrumenting a product, um, so you can figure out what's working, what's not. So what, what, what do you mean by instrumentation? And can you give a couple of examples, um, from, from your perspective? Yeah, I think there's two ways to think about this. So the first is sort of this like optimization piece, and then there's the value creation piece. So on the optimization piece, every time we build something, we're making a series of a assumptions about the customer is going to do this, and then they're going to do that, and then they're going to do this next thing. And at the end, some value will be created. So on the optimization side, we're looking at our customers actually doing what we thought they would do. And more often than not, we lose them somewhere in that funnel, right? So um, instrumenting your product, being able to measure what is your customer doing at each step, where are we losing them in that funnel, really helps to make sure that what we're building actually matches what we think is going to happen. That's like that's the like tactical day-to-day, -day, how do I get this feature or this particular solution to work the way that we thought it would? Then there's the more important question of like, okay, people are doing what we thought they would. Is that creating value for them in a way that creates value for the business? And that's that like final, final value creation piece. And usually that's tied to, did this solution address the need that we had identified? So can we verify with people who went through all the steps the way that we thought that it did, in fact, create that value for them? And then um, did it do it in a way that's going to create value for our business? So I can give an example from my past experience. I shared a story in the book about I worked at this company that helps new college grads find their first job out of college. And when I first started working there, the company framed success as just getting college students to apply for jobs. Um, this is what a lot of employers track. Um, the challenge with this is it's the wrong metric for both parties. Right? Like a college student doesn't want to apply to 100 jobs. That doesn't actually create any value for them. 
In fact, we've all been that job seeker that has applied to 100 jobs, never heard back, and no value was created, right? Um, and on the employer side, they actually don't want a lot of applications. In fact, a lot of irrelevant applications creates a problem, right? So what do both sides want? The employer wants to hire somebody and the college student wants a job. So when we're looking at value creation, we need to look at, did this student get a job and did this employer fill their role? That's the value creation. The challenge with that is those things happen outside of our service. And this is why MoDA boards don't want to measure that because it's offsite, right? Like we get you to the employer, but then you got to go interview and they got to give you an offer. It's a much harder so to we track. Look at what we're, yeah. Yeah. So we looked at what are creative ways to get either party to tell us if that value creation actually happened. And we actually worked it from both sides. We we tried to get students to tell us. We tried to get employers to tell us um, just to get a better window onto that value creation. So from a funnel standpoint, we could track what you searched for, what jobs you clicked on, what jobs you viewed, what jobs you applied to. That's like the funnel of are they using the product in the way that we expect. Mm -hmm. But the value creation is that last final piece of did we actually help you get a job. And and I, I forget now, I remember the story, but I forget, did, were you able to figure out um, if they were getting the jobs consistently or? Yeah, so it turns out trying to solve this on the employer side is really hard. <laughs> An employer doesn't want to tell you they hired somebody from your platform uh, because they think you'll raise your prices on them, mm -hmm. right? So the employer story is we source from a lot of different places and we generally know only X number of people came from your place, but we don't know how many of them we hired. That's not really true. They do know because now their applicant tracking systems uh -huh. track all of this stuff. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, but they don't want to tell you, right? And it kind of makes sense. If you spend 20K a year with this platform and you find out you're responsible for 80% of their hires, what are you going to do? You're going to quadruple their price. All right. So they're kind of doing it to defend their budget, which is fair. So we, we realized pretty early on for most employers, we weren't going to get reliable information from them. So what we did was we worked the student side really hard. And what we recognized was students are actually applying for real jobs for the first time. They may have had part-time jobs or summer jobs or internships, but they've never been through the like full, most of them have never been through the full-time job experience. So we realized like they don't know how to dress for interviews. They don't know what to expect in an interview. They don't know how to negotiate an offer. There's all these things that happen off our site that they could use help with. So we're like, oh, if we just offer them help, they might tell us where they are in the process. So the very simple thing we did was three weeks after they applied for a job, we sent them an email. And we said, hey, you applied for this job. What happened? And then we gave them options like, oh, you never heard back? Well, let's see if we can find better fit jobs for you. Oh, you got an interview? Let's help you prepare for the interview. Oh, you got the job? Can we celebrate with you? So we sort of gave them an incentive to tell us where were you in the process with this particular job. Now, did everybody fill that out? No, right? But enough people did that we started to get a window into what's happening here. And then obviously, the more we did that, the more we could see how helpful were these resources? How do we make that better so that more people will respond? Did we get the steps right? Um, when we first started, I think our first run, I might get these numbers wrong, and I can't even remember if I included them in the books. If they don't match, I apologize. But then when we first started, it was low. We were getting like, I want to say between 5 and 14% of um, uh, of those emails got a response. And then remember, like if you applied to 10 jobs, you're going to get 10 of these emails, right? So, because we're really asking about what happened with this, this particular, particular job. application, yeah, right. Yeah, so our numbers were atrocious to start, like really low conversion rates. 
But let's say it's worst case scenario, even only 5% of people reply. Well, now we have a, a window into 5% of applications of what's happening on our website, whereas before we had zero, right? So even a teeny tiny conversion number is still a really helpful window. And then, of course, we weren't done. Like we could, we optimized that email lines. We focused on how we presented the value. We focused on like the goodies we behind each option. Um, and we got, I, I think by the time we left, that conversion rate was like in the 30%. Um, and I was only at that company for 13 months. So we made a lot wow. of progress in a very short period of time. <laughs> that, absolutely. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, well, I, I, I love that. I, I love that that you were able to identify, a di- you know, one, one of the things that our, our, uh, our previous head of product strategy and design here at Three Pillar used to say to me is, is always think about the give-get ratio. Um, and so you found a way to, yeah. to give more in order, you know, so that you knew, you knew what you're going to ask for back from them. Um, but you were, you found yep. new, new value opportunities, um, through, through empathy and insight, um, which is, which is so powerful. Yeah, I, think, I think the key is that like, we're in the behavior change business, right? Like I'm trying to design an experience that gets you to change your behavior in some way. Me wanting you to change your behavior does not get you to change your behavior. Right. So with all product design, we have to look at like, how do we get you to do the things you want to do? And how do we make sure that's good for you and good for the business? Whereas I think where teams get it wrong is they're trying to get the customer to do something they don't want to do that's good for the business. Right. There's a misalignment there. Or we're coming up with all these steps that we feel like the customer has to do, but they don't want to do, even if they want the value at the end. Right. So I think looking at it as this like behavior change problem can be really helpful. Yeah. Well, and, and in addition to that, Tim O'Reilly used to say, um, I'm sure he still does, but um, as long as you're providing more value than you're asking for back, that's a winning, that's a, that's a winning proposition. Right. Um, and yeah. I, and, and so I, I've, I've taken that line with me to every, every request I get is, are we, are we, we're asking for new value from the customer are we giving them enough back to make it sufficient? Because hey, customers, just like the rest of us, value our time, um, even sometimes more yeah. than money. Um, and so while we tend to think you know, exclusively about money, time time's a premium. Yeah, I would say I like that, and it still feels a little bit like transactional ROI. So the way that I would improve it is, like, if I'm trying to collect a pro- profile data from you, right, like. You could frame it as, I should only ask for as much as I can give you more value back. I would frame it as, how do I give you enough value that you want to tell me these things, right? So the like wanting is the piece that I think is really important. It's not about like, I'll begrudgingly give you this because I want the value at the end. It's that I can clearly see how giving you this gives me value. And that's a little bit of splitting hairs, right? Because it's still this like trade-off of I gave you a thing and you gave me value. So I'm not going to say Tim O'Reilly is wrong. But I think this like framing of like, I want you to want to do this. It's not just that I want you to be willing to do this. I want you to want to do it. Because that's how I ensure it's good for me and good for you. Well, this is how, I mean, you know, thinking about Facebook and birthdays, right? Like I would never give my birthday to Facebook unless it was the way by which I would be telling all my friends when my birthday is so that they, they know. Um, so I want to give yeah. it up, not to Facebook, but to my community 
that just happens yeah. to be hosted on Facebook. So, yep. right. So it, it I, I totally agree with you. That subtlety is, is really, really important ultimately, uh, if we're going to try to achieve these, yeah. these goals. Um, Absolutely. Well, you know, you mentioned chat, B, chat GPT before. Um, so we actually have a, a little experiment we've been running uh, for a few episodes here where we actually ask um, chat GPT to come up with questions for you. Um, and uh, and we're always intrigued what it what it comes up with. So are you ready for a couple of... Uh, I'm in, I saw this on your list. I'm intrigued by it. Because first of all, chat GPT thinks somebody else wrote my book. <laughs> chat GPT thinks somebody else invented the opportunity solution tree. When I ask ChatGPT for articles on the Opportunity Solution Tree, none of my articles come up. Everything that <laughs> ChatGPT suggested is a, not a real article. Like I put the title and author into Google and it just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm a little bit surprised ChatGPT could generate questions for me because it seems like ChatGPT is trying to erase me from the universe. It, yeah, it seems to have a grudge against you, but uh, <laughs> but it actually did come up with some questions. Yeah. And, and you can tell me if they're any, All right, let's do if it. they're if they're any good. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I always trust but verify. <laughs> Um, yeah, I have a hard time trusting AI to generate um, to generate stuff. But, but this, this experiment has been fun. I'm super excited about ChatGPT. <laughs> cool. Um, so the first one is, can you share examples of companies or product teams who have successfully implemented continuous discovery and seen positive results in both customer satisfaction and business growth? Yeah, this is a great question. I'm gonna I'm gonna change this fast all the time. Uh, who are the companies that do this well? I think there are zero companies that across the board do this well. Zero. And I think um, we hear from, like, we hear about these, like, sexy companies and they're so great at everything. Google invented OKRs. That's not really true, but they definitely popularized it. I've worked with teams at Google who were terrible at OKRs. And I'm not picking on Google, right? This is an example of it's really hard for a company across the board to be universally good at something, right? Same with like the Spotify model. I've worked with teams at Spotify that we're still learning how to cross-functionally collaborate, right? So um, when people ask this question, usually it's rooted in like, where should I go work? And I think better question is, who are the leaders who are supporting their teams in working this way? Because I think we're, it's an ongoing culture change for all of us. Right. So, who are the leaders that are really committed to working this way? That's a hard question. There's a lot of leaders. They're all on different points in their journey. One of the things that we do at Product Truck to try to solve this um, question for people is we have a series called Product and Practice, where we share real world stories of how teams are putting these ideas into practice. Um, so, like we recently shared a story um, from this company, Grailed. That's an example. Their story is a real example of how they started um, interviewing customers using my story-based method. They started using an opportunity solution tree. They mapped out the opportunity space. And they got like a 20 plus percent increase in their conversion of like their ultimate sale. And I don't remember all the details off the top of my head, but like it's a really remarkable story. Like they learned about some really nuanced unmet needs. They solved those needs. It created business value. Um, and I think that like, Okay, that's great. So does that mean you should go work at Grailed? I don't know, right? Like, is that one team doing great work at Grailed? Or do they have a culture of this across the company? I don't know. I know of a couple companies that, like, I have enough exposure to them. Like, Atfolio comes to mind. Like, they, see, which is a company most people have never even heard of. And they're kind of in a boring vertical industry. Uh, but they have this amazing product culture. And, like, really 
high quality people come out of that organization and are having a huge impact. So like, I people tend to think of like Google and Netflix and Facebook, maybe not Facebook anymore these days. Um, but actually, there's all, there's all these like smaller companies where just the leaders, this is that Folio story, like the leaders were so intentional about product culture, but they built an amazing company. Um, so I think I would reframe this question as, how do I identify the leaders that support this? And then that's a little bit easier, right? We can look on LinkedIn. We can look at how they describe their work. We can look at the job listings and how they're describing the role. We can ask those leaders really in-depth, good questions and interviews. We have a blog post about how to interview. When you're interviewing a company, how do you evaluate their discovery habits and their discovery culture? That's incredibly useful. Yeah, I, the, the, the trait that seem, feels like it's in the shorter supply when we talk about leaders is, is the humility, hypothesis thinking. Um, it's one of the things that I really gravitated to in, in both uh, your work and um, Josh Seiden's work, um, talking about, uh, you mm -hmm. know, again, outcomes over outputs, but really thinking about, you know, I have a hypothesis, not I have a solution. My solution is a hypothesis, right? Yeah, and here's, <laughs> here's the challenge. Business culture, how do executives get to where they are historically by being right? That's right. And being right more often than they're wrong, right? So we've rewarded people for having the right answers. We don't reward people for having an openness to ambiguity and uncertainty. In fact, business wants the opposite. We do five-year planning, which is insane. That's right. Right? That's right. Um, your five-year plan in 2020 probably got ripped apart by March, right? Like that. <laughs> hopefully, right. a silver lining of COVID is we just learned not to predict the future. Um, well, you know, humans yeah, have short so, memory, so I'm sure we'll be back to that soon. But. That's, I know. I'm. That's where I'm an optimist. Maybe me. It would be nice to evolve, an optimist. Though. Yeah. Uh, a hopeful... Uh, maybe a hopeful pessimist. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so like I think the thing to recognize here is that like people behave that way for a reason. Mm -hmm. And that type of change has to be reinforced by the organization. Mm -hmm. So the very top leadership has to reward not having the right answer and has right. to be reward uh, this openness to learning. And I think that's why this change is so slow and so hard. That and, and I'll, I'll credit leaders, like it takes a lot of courage to tell your investors, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, if you think about yeah. the way the company gets founded, I mean, let's go, we can go all the way down to the, yeah. uh, the studs here and say, look, like it gets founded by a founder who has a really compelling story about all I need is money and I can, I can make you, I can make this thing run. And uh, the false certainty of it. This, um, yeah, this is grounded in like our business culture at, the, at every level, mm -hmm. right? Public companies are supposed to um, announce quarterly earnings ahead of time. Like we can predict even three months in the future. Um, but and how often they're wrong uh, is, is, a, is great fodder for like, why do we do this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how often they have to release updates. Mm -hmm. So six weeks in, we're going to tell you that update we gave you six weeks ago was wrong. Oops. Sorry. Um, it's, this is a, this is really steeped in our business culture. And I think it's because, you know, at the beginning of like the industrial revolution, some of this stuff was more predictable. Things changed at a little bit slower pace. Maybe. I mean, that's our perception. I don't know if they perceived it that way at that time. Um, but I do think uh, the internet has accelerated. Um, it's definitely accelerated like entry into markets, um, how fast we can get products into markets, how fast we can distribute things. Um, and so I think that's had a really big impact on why we're seeing our old business methods mm -hmm. sort of break at the seams. Well, and this is part of my interest in this is is rooted in that, right? Like, 
certainly it's easy to get products out there and there's just more and more products and you know you know i'm an android user so my google play has hundreds of thousands of apps that nobody's ever used right so it's yep. real easy to get them out there it's real hard to be compelling enough to be used by a, a, any any significant number or to be yeah. used in a, in a way that is significant to the people who are using it right that is meaningful to them and so i, I do believe that the the next generation of products need to uh, be just more insightful um, towards towards the people they're trying to serve. Um, this is a little bit of a new idea in business. It's not completely new, but it's a little bit of a new idea, right? Like in the 1950s or in the 1930s, if I wanted to like sell soap, I didn't have to make the best soap, mm-hmm. right? Great I had to get on the store shelf. That's what sold soap. So if we think about business in this like physical product, distributing in a real brick-and-mortar store, Mm -hmm. the things that gave you an advantage just required capital. So if you could fundraise and if you could build a brand through big TV marketing or radio marketing or however they advertised in the 30s, maybe (laughs) billboards, um, and get on that store shelf, Mm -hmm. right? Um, That was enough for you to win. Okay, well, then that advantage started to go away, right? We start to get Porter's view of strategy and five forces and differentiating in the market. And we're starting to get into quality, but it wasn't always product quality, right? You could differentiate in the market just with your marketing message, mm-hmm. right? I think what the internet has really accelerated is that to compete in business, product quality matters more. Mm. Now, it's not the most important thing. I'm going to argue Slack is a better product than MS Teams. Microsoft's ability to distribute Teams through Office is an example of getting on that store shelf where Microsoft is probably going to win this battle with a lesser product, mm-hmm. right? So it's not right. just about product quality, but I think the internet has turned up the volume on product quality. Mm-hmm. And there's there's still and a lot, lot of people who love. Thriving. There's a lot of a lot of my uh, you know coworkers love uh, uh, Slack over Teams any any day of the week. So yeah, um, I mean I can barely use Teams. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been. Up but today, I but. get it. <laughs> I yeah. get it. I don't know why companies pay for a product they can get for free, right? That's right. Yeah, I, I would say that was a good question from ChatGPT. <laughs> um, it was. It did, did a pretty good job there. Um, great. So, uh, sort. I know we're coming up on time, and I wanted to uh, to take you through our speed round, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. You ready? Um, so. Your, your ears must have been burning a lot lately uh, because a number of our recent guests and myself have referenced you and your and your book, um, including Marty Kagan, who was just on our, our last episode. Um, what are one or two books that you would recommend our listeners to read in this space? Yeah, the first one is Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath. So mm. Chip and Dan Heath are an interesting pair. They're brothers. One is an academic and the other is an industry. And what they do is they do a great job of summarizing the best of what we know from academic research in a way that is very applicable to industry. Uh, they probably have written some of my favorite books. And then Decisive is all about decision-making research. And Discovery really is about decision-making. So that's my first one. Nice. Um, the second one I would say is, is Nudge by um, Thaler mm. and Sunstein. So Nudge is in the behavioral economics realm. It's all about designing choice architectures. So if you've heard about the studies like if you make the opt-in if you make 401ks opt out instead of opt in, then you get like X percent higher savings rates. A the other one that is no, um, yeah. often used is the, the organ donors, whether you're opting in or opting out. 
Um, what I love about that book, first of all, the name is brilliant. It's all about like, how do we nudge people to do the behaviors that they want to do, but maybe don't do, right? So like, we want to eat healthier. How do we nudge them? Maybe put the salad before the fried food in a, in a buffet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that book is like a great way to think about um, how do we design to support what people want to do without restricting what they can do. Um, so that's another that's another great one. Those are those are both great, and and the Heath brothers are uh, ever since I read Upstream, I've I've uh, I've loved their their work. Um, yeah, they have a number of great ones. Yeah. Made to stick. <laughs> that's right. It's a good one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you this because I asked uh, Marty Kagan the same question. So Elon Musk calls you tomorrow and uh, and offers you the role of chief product officer for Twitter. What do you What do you do? What do you say? Uh, definitely no. Uh, this is an interesting question for me, though. I love Twitter. I would love somebody to take over Twitter and responsibly improve it. I don't think that's what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say no, because I'm I'm done having jobs for other people. I learned that in my last... The reason why I was only at my last company was for 13 months is I learned that I am no longer a good employee. And I think it's important <laughs> to recognize that. Um, and so the answer would be no. But if... In the abstract, if I could work on how to improve Twitter, I think that would be a fascinating challenge to work on. Well, I'm sad to hear that you you wouldn't you wouldn't go back to a company because uh, I I think working with you would be fantastic. Um, it'd be a lot of fun to to build products with someone someone like you or or yourself, um, for sure. So here here's a softball: Where should people go to find out more about you, your book, and your work? Yeah, so the book is called Continuous Discovery Habits. It's available in bookstores around the world in Kindle paperback. Audible, EPUB. Uh, I think those are all the formats. Uh, I blog at producttalk.org. Um, so we publish, uh, we're pretty much twice a month and we're about to jump to three times a month. Um, we actually publish three times a month in January or in February. We'll see if we can maintain that pace. Um, our goal with the blog is to share real world stories about how teams are putting the discovery habits into practice. And it's also to just give you really practical, practical, actionable ways to do that. Um, and then we also offer a variety of online courses to help people build skills in the discovery habits. Um, so we'll teach you how to interview well. Um, we'll teach you how to run good assumption tests and a wide variety of other things. And those are also available at producttalk.org. That's fantastic. And then I'll, I'll, our, uh, our head of, of, of UX is also a researcher. Um, you know, so while we have nice. we have visual design, we have interaction design. Research, I think, is our special sauce, and so um, I'm excited that the leader of our practice is a is a researcher, and I'll, I'll be pointing him towards uh, towards your stuff as well. If he doesn't already if he doesn't already know about it, it'd be a, a little bit shocking, but you never know. So, but uh, Teresa, thank you. <laughs> you uh, it's been a joy having you on, and uh, and uh, I'm just I'm honored and thrilled to get to spend time with you and talk about something that uh, I'm I'm passionate about as well as as I know you are. Yeah, thanks, Scott. This has been a really fun conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.